So I joined Woodside about two and a half years ago. It was right after Easter. I joined Woodside. And you guys know when you, when you started a new job, right, when you started a new work, when you started a new church, you have to learn lingo, right? You have to learn to kind of talk their talk. You have to learn the story. And so my boss, he taught me that back in 2005, there was one campus at Woodside. And today there are 14 campuses. So I wanted to know why. Like, why didn't we just make one ginormous church in Troy? And here's what he said. He said, because people everywhere desperately need Jesus. And if you hang around Woodside for very long, you're going to hear that a lot. People everywhere desperately need Jesus. And he said, so what we try to do is keep lighthouses, churches, lighthouses open and thriving in community. And that's what's going on right here. Right? What this is at Woodside Romeo, this is, this is a lighthouse to the community. It is a beacon for Washington and Romeo and Bruce and Almont and Armada and any of the other A names that might be up there, right? All of that, like this, this is that place of refuge for everybody. And throughout the other six days a week, lighthouses, what do they do? They light the way so that people, when they're in the midst of a storm, can see the way to safety. Just what we do is we send the rescuers to the people, right? That's what this place is. And if we're not careful, you guys know this, if we're not careful, if we get away from our purpose and our mission, all of a sudden we become a lighthouse that's in need of rescue. We become one of those that we need someone to come in and help us. And you guys know how this works, right? I mean, it's called drift. You guys know how it works. January every year, maybe this isn't you. Maybe you've seen people do this, but maybe it is you. January, all of a sudden, what do you do? You say, I'm going to get fit this year. Man, I'm going to look good. I'm going on a diet. I am. And you put a picture of yourself, like, that's back when I looked good. I was wearing my skinny jeans right then. I never wore skinny jeans. But, like, you, you, you know, putting the picture up there, that's when I was looking better than I am now. I'm going to get there. Or maybe you put, like, I'm going to run a 5K or a marathon or what You know, you're putting that on there. And you start. And for the new year, you're doing so good for 48 hours. You're killing it. Right? <laughs> Your diet, you are so good. And then on day three, you didn't pack a lunch. You didn't pack an almond snack, you know, that little bag of almonds that you're supposed to. You didn't do none of that, and so you're driving down the road. And it's like those golden arches, they're just singing to you like an angel, you know. And, and you're just looking, and you're going, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And then you turn on your signal, and you're like, what are you doing? And the car just turns itself right in. You're thinking to yourself, that's okay. They have salad, you know, and I can get a side of an apple, and this will be good. And you roll down your window, and they say, welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order, please? And you go, I want a Big Mac. Like, you can't even help yourself. It flies right out, and then they say, would you like fries with that? Yes, yes, I do. I do want fries with that. And they say, would you like to supersize it? Of course I want to supersize it, right? And you're like, I can't take it. I've got to have the McDonald's, but you're on a diet. So when they say, what would you like to drink, you say, <laughs> we lie to ourselves so bad, right? We lie to ourselves, and then we get on the skin, and we're like, why does it keep going that way? Like, I don't understand. Now, just so you know, that's not my struggle. I can drive right by McDonald's every single day, no problem. But in Michigan, I kind of look at it like four seasons. You know, we have summer, fall. We don't have so We have fall. I messed up my joke. <laughs> Start over. Act like I didn't say that. Four seasons. We have winter, and we have spring, and we have fall, and then we have 
ice cream, right? Ice cream is like summer. So in the summertime, all of a sudden, I just, my body just knows it's, it's like ice cream season. And so I think like I need three scoops a day. Like three scoops a day is the diet plan. And it, again, the same thing, you get on the scale and the scale is going the wrong way. And you're like, how can this be? Earlier in the year, a group of leaders from Woodside, we read through a book called Mission Drift, talking about this exact thing. It's when you set your mission, you set your destination, and you start to drift away from it. Listen to this. There was a mission statement from a well-known university. The year was 1636 when they said this. This university said, they exist to let every student be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Did you hear what Harvard University said? Harvard said that the foundation is Jesus Christ, the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And you guys already know, they drifted way away from that. After only 80 years, after 80 years, a group of pastors and educators got together and they said, we need to do something because that's not what they're living anymore. We need, to, we need to form our own university. In fact, they said they're about truth. We're going to make our motto light and truth. But you guys already know that Yale University didn't stay the course either, did they? They started to drift from their mission as well. And the thing is, is it can happen to anyone. It can happen to hospitals, schools. It can happen to your family. It can happen to a church where you're going along one way. You've got your purpose. You've got your mission. You know exactly what you're about. But if you're not careful, so subtly, so without your intention, it starts to drift away from where you want it to be. And this is important. Guys, it never jumps back to where it's supposed to be on its own. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if your church starts to drift away from Jesus, it doesn't magically fall back in line with Jesus. It will always take something. It will always take someone to intentionally guide it back. That's what happens in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as Jesus talks with the church at Sardis. Take your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is not going to be soft. This is not going to be subtle. This is Jesus looking at this church and telling them, you need to wake up, which is our big idea today. Wake up and walk with Christ. Our big idea today is wake up and walk with Christ. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in a sermon series called Drift, talking about how as Christians you can drift away from Jesus In Revelation chapter 1 is where we started the series. Revelation 1, you see this beautiful picture of Jesus, this powerful picture of Jesus, resurrected, glorified Christ. And if you missed it, or even if you were there, it's still good. Go back and reread Revelation 1 because it's one of those chapters where your mouth just kind of drops as you read about Jesus with eyes like fire and feet that are bronze, all-powerful, almighty, majestic Jesus. And then in chapters 2 and 3, powerful, resurrected Jesus starts to speak with John, the Apostle John, who's in exile on the island of Patmos. And he says, there's seven churches in Asia Minor. I want you to send them all a letter. And so chapters two and three are the letters from Jesus through John to these churches. And they all follow a pattern. Have you noticed the pattern? There's this pattern where first you see a description of Jesus. The description of Jesus is unique to every church. It's not the same between the, it's unique 
and it's really intentionally set aside for that church. You'll hear more about that today. Then you're going to see this encouragement. Here's what you're doing well. You see a correction. Here's what you're not doing well. You see this call to repent. You've been doing this. Get back in line with my ways. I'm not going to change. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but it's our responsibility to get back in line with the Lord, and then there's this encouragement to listen to his promises and then follow that out. He who has near, let him hear. So here's a question I want us to wrestle with today. Here we are, Woodside Bible Church, Romeo. How do we ensure that we stay a lighthouse to this community? How do we keep from starting to drift away from our calling in the Lord? How do we make sure that we don't become a bunch of Christians who are asleep? And if you are asleep this morning, how do you wake up? That's what I want us to wrestle with. That's what I want us to pull out of Scripture. Revelation 3 answers the question. The first thing we see is we need to recognize that Jesus knows what's behind our reputations. Let's dive in. Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. John writes this. He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So again, Jesus, Jesus starts every letter with a description of himself. And right here, he says he's the one with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we've talked before with apocalyptic literature, sometimes there's language that is full of imagery, right? This is one of those examples. This is not saying that we're going to add to the Trinity, it's not saying there's the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, 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 Spirit. Right? That's not what it's saying. It's saying that in Jewish apocalyptic literature, the number seven was perfect. It was complete. It was holy. And so when Jesus says the seven spirits, he's saying the one perfect, complete, holy Spirit of God. And then he talks about the, the seven stars. We know the seven stars from chapter 1, verse 16. We know that it's, it's already called out that the seven stars are the seven churches, right? It's specifically talking about the seven churches. So why is this image of Jesus so important for Sardis? Because it is. This image of Jesus is so just spot on and perfect for Sardis. You see, Sardis, the city of Sardis wasn't different really than Pergamum, or Smyrna, if you've been with us for past weeks. And what I mean by that, Pergamum and Smyrna, they were cities where Roman culture was the major influence. And Roman culture being the influence, it meant that they worshipped Caesar. He wasn't just like a president or a ruler. He was worshipped as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings is what he was called. And if you didn't follow that, it could cost you your life. Like they could kill you for going against that. It was also a very pagan culture, meaning you were expected to worship the idols within the city. If you didn't worship the idols, you're probably going to lose your job, you're going to lose your home. Economically, you would be ruined, absolutely ruined. There was a group of Jews who lived in this community. If you remember back from chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus called that particular group a synagogue of Satan. Do you remember that? And here's why he said that. He said you're a synagogue of Satan, not only because you have, uh, you have rejected Jesus Christ, you're a synagogue of Satan because you're doing everything you can to stop the spread of the gospel. You're being used by Satan through this whole process. You're a synagogue of Satan. So think about that. Caesar worshiping Romans. Idol-driven pagans. Jesus rejecting Jews. And this particular church was facing zero 
persecution. No one was dying that we read. No one in history that we can find, they're not losing their jobs, they're not losing their homes, they're not being called out. In fact, in this particular culture, everyone's like, yeah, the church is there, that's fine. Whatever, it's fine that the church is there. We don't care, we walk right past all the time. That church wouldn't do anything. We're just, it's right there. Here's why it's important. The gospel, the gospel by its very name is good news. Right, the gospel's good news. The gospel is that God loves you. He is a good God. He knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came for you because God loves you. The gospel is that because of Jesus, you get to go to heaven. The gospel is that because of Jesus, you get a right standing with God. That's the gospel. That's half the gospel, isn't it? Because there's another side of the gospel. There's another side of the gospel that says, you and I, we are sinners. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short of glory. We're not perfect. The Bible says the wages of sin, the penalty for sin, the payment for sin is death. Death meaning eternal, forever separation from a holy and an awesome God. And I just want you to know that there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you can't pay enough. You can't be good enough. That's why, Jesus, you need Jesus. And the thing is, is the gospel, that gospel, the complete gospel is offensive. It was offensive in the first century. It would cause people to die. It would cause them to lose their, their jobs and their homes. Man, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't, just, it wasn't just offensive then. The gospel's offensive now. It is. If I told you today that you need to love people, all people, some of you would be like, sweet, I can do that. And some of you would be like, I mostly can do that. I mean, just as long as that person doesn't walk through the door, I'm okay. You know, or those people, those people came in, I might get up and leave. I might, you know, like I'm good with the gospel and I'm good with loving people, but there's some people. And then some of you, like you're totally cool with the loving people, you just struggle with the fact that Christians have a specific calling. Just because we love everybody doesn't mean that we call all actions good. Sin is real. Going against the ways of God is real. So we have a calling, church. We have this call to live rightly according to the word of God. And there's people who don't like that. There's people who get angry about that. Still today, people will get angry about that. So in this particular church, there was zero resistance to the gospel. And this is important because they aren't being witnesses. Now here's, this, I'm getting ready to tie it all together. This is getting ready to make a lot more sense. Witnesses go back to Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, what does Jesus say? He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, which he does in Acts 2. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Remember this? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Remember that? It's going, it's going to be like ripples in a pond. You're going to start in your hometown, and then your region, and then your nation, the very ends of the earth, right? It's just going to keep going. You're going to be my witnesses. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. But they're not being witnesses. They are asleep when it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like they forgot the power that's there. So they're not living any of this, and they need revive, but they're ignoring the Spirit. My friends, the Holy Spirit is what happens when you become a follower. When you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you. That is how you can love 
all people. That is how when someone wrongs you, you can forgive them. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not because you're good. It is because the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. That's how you do it. That's how you can have peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's how you can have all this fruit of the Spirit because it's the Spirit living in you. Now, on Wednesday, here's what I'm talking about on Wednesday. I'm just going to give all of you a preview. Every single one of you, there's things that you're, you're just wired in your personality, right? It's just, it's just who you are. And then there are experiences that you've had. And then there's things you're good at, talents. You know, like sometimes people can play the guitar. Sometimes people can uh, trim bushes to look like a mouse. I don't know. Sometimes you can, you just have different skills, right? Everyone has, some are really good at flipping the burgers. You have different skills. But this is different, when you become a follower of Jesus, you're given gifts. The gifts are, the spiritual gifts are the things that God gives for you to serve the church and build up the church in unity until Christ comes. Gifts, gifts are when God's power is literally working through you. It's not you, it's the Holy Spirit in you working. It is a whole different ballgame. And this particular church, they are no longer being his witnesses. They are no longer uh, working with the power of the Spirit. And did you hear what Jesus said at the very beginning? I hold in my hands the seven spirits, the perfect Holy Spirit of God. And I hold the seven churches. And I'm going to see them to come colliding together. And something incredible is going to happen because you need revived. Isn't that powerful? Like there it is right there. Now in the 6th century B.C. I love this. Sometimes when you read through Scripture... Uh, what I like to do, I like to bring out kind of some historical books as well, just to see how the two come colliding together. It just makes, for me, a real rich experience, like in this case. In the 6th century B.C., Sardis was one of those cities. Like, it was a thriving, booming city. They had everything they needed in the 6th century B.C. By the Roman time, by this 1st century, when Rome is in charge, it's more like a relic, does that make sense? Like you, you had so much potential. You looked good back in the day, but now people come kind of check you out because of what you used to be, not really what you are. Like they want to see all of this, but there's really nothing there. It's kind of like if you have a shiny new car with no engine in it. It's like, oh, I mean, I guess it looks kind of cool, but there's really nothing going on right here. That's what's going on with Sardis right here. Jesus knows our reputations Church, not just here of Sardis, he knows your reputation and mine. And you can dress how, you can put the mask on when you come to church. You can make me believe whatever you want to make me believe. Churches do it too, don't we? You look at the kids area, oh, the kids area looks great, looks great. Kip and the band gets up, man, that worship team, whoo, they're smoking today, it was good. You know, Billy gets up, preaches a certain week. We can look like one thing, but the reality is the Lord sees past our reputation. He sees past the image that we want to try to portray to the rest of the world. You've heard the saying that perception is reality, meaning this, like what you put on Facebook and how people feel about it, when they think about it, like that's true. That's not true with Jesus. Jesus sees through all the facades. He sees through the mask. He sees through the dance, he sees the reality of our hearts, and he's looking at this particular church, and he's saying, you need to wake up, because right now you are dead. You've stopped being witnesses, and you're living like someone who's dead. So how do we keep our lighthouse from drifting? What do we need to do? Point number two, we need to see that Jesus warns those who don't wake up. Look at Revelation 3, 2. 
Scripture says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not yet found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you, do not, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So these first two commands, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, which is interesting, about to die. Because in verse number one, he says you're dead. But now he says you're about to die. And it's kind of like, oh, Jesus, which is it? Now about to die or are they dead? Well, it's like when a heart attack happens. You know, in the, the emergency room people, they get those paddles and they, do they, do they rub them together? Do they, they do rub them together. Okay, I didn't know like if that was just TV or if they, really, so they rub them together and then they yell clear and then, you know, they do that. That's what's going on. This church is lying there, and Jesus says, this is life and death right here. This is the moment you need to wake up, or soon you will be dead. But then it was so encouraging. Look what he says. Wake up and strengthen what remains. You know what that says? That says there's still people in the church that say, we are still on a mission to seek out and save that which is lost. We have not forgotten what the Lord has called us to. We are still part of making disciples. They're still right in the middle of it. They have not given up. They have not quit. It says there are a few names of people willing to follow the Holy Spirit's leading, but look what it says. Their work is incomplete. I would circle that in my Bible right there. Their work is incomplete because this is important. John is writing to this church in Sardis, which means they have a story you know that, right? Every city kind of has its own story. We have our own language that we can talk with each other, right? No nods? Okay. If I got in an airplane here in just the next few minutes, I finished preaching, went and got on an airplane, and I fly to Dallas-Fort Worth, and I get off the airplane, I'd have to look at everybody and say, how y'all doing? Because how they talk down there. How y'all doing? They go, we're doing pretty good. How you doing? Good, good. Hey, how you think them lions are going to do this year? You know what they do? They'd look at me and go, What? Like, they, 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 it wouldn't register. It wouldn't connect. Now, if I said, hey, what do you think about Dak Prescott and his contract? Woo-hoo-hoo! Watch out, because they're going to have an opinion, and they're going to tell me about it. And if I said, what do you think, what do you think about Zeke? Tell me about Ezekiel Elliott. What do you think, how do you think he's going to do? They're going to have an opinion. They're thinking the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl. Every year, that's what they think, just so you know. Like, that's their expectation. Now, we're right here. So if I said, hey, how do you think the Lions are going to do this year? What? Okay, now here's the thing. You guys are so cynical. <laughs> like, most people who are Lions fans will probably go, yeah, you know, here's what that means. Yeah, it means I'm cautiously optimistic. Like, they've got some good pieces that they put in place during the offseason. There's that guy who used to be with the Patriots. Now he's here, and I don't understand the pencil behind the ear, but, you know, maybe the guy's going to be good. We're going to see, and I'm going to give him a shot, and I'm hoping, but we've never won, ever. Like, so, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know that I'm going to put my heart out there and say, yes, we're winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'd just be happy with one playoff game, you know? And so, here's the thing. I can say that, and you and I, we know what we're talking about. As Lions fans, we understand the pain like we get it. John is writing this to the people of Sardis. Now, all the churches are seeing all of these letters. They're all seeing them all. And yet, when it comes to this particular one, what he just said is huge. The work not being complete. Here's what I mean. Look at this picture. This is a massive temple in Sardis that was dedicated 
to the Greek goddess Artemis. Now, that's about 48,000 square feet that you're looking at. Do you see these columns? There's 78 of them. They're 58 feet tall. There's two of them. These two, they're still standing at their full height. But all 78, all 78 columns would have been that height. Just to show you how imposing that would have been. People, right? These are people right there. And so you can see the scope and you can imagine the first century what this temple would have felt like. This thing would have been massive, right? Built to this Greek goddess of Artemis, who, by the way, was said to have the power to resurrect life, to bring the dead back to life. Those who are on the edge and about not to make it to help them wake up and come back to life. You ready? Here we go. This temple was never completed. Let me go back to what John said. John said that there were those, how did he say it? Um, What remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Here's this temple that was never complete. He's writing this to a people in this city, and this was right in their face every single day. Do you see how incredible that is? Do you see how powerful that is when he talks about your works that are not complete? So this temple never saw anyone revived, never saw anyone resurrected. John is saying, you're a lot like that in your church. You look kind of good on the outside. You're kind of impressive on the, on the outside. But it's all dead and it's not even complete. Like it's kind of sad. That potential, potential when you're young is a great thing, isn't it? After a while, potential gets to where it's no longer a compliment. Potential gets to where it's kind of a sad thing. So what does it look like to actually finish the work? Since the Christians were not finished with their work, what's it look like? Verse number five tells us. Verse number five says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never, listen, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So completing the work means you acknowledge Jesus And you continue the work of making disciples, even if it costs you something. So my question to you is, where's your line? Where's that line where you would say, I'm willing to make disciples up until what point? Up until the point where you have to volunteer and serve on Sunday morning, is that your line? Up until the point where it financially is going to cost something, is is that your line? Up until the point where you have to talk to your next door neighbor, because my neighbor's weird, that's why I drive in and press that garage door button real fast so I don't have to talk to them. But that would be my line is talking to my neighbor. How about talking to people at work? Because you're like, I don't want to be the weird Christian. You know, I don't want to be that guy. You know? And so I'm not going to talk about Jesus when I go to work because I don't want to be that. Per- Where's your line? Where's your line of what it means to make disciples? Because if we're going to truly stay on task, we're going to say, no, there are no lines. I'm going to be faithful to the mission that he's called us to. Verse number three, the last three commands. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. What you, what you received and heard. What, really a better translation would be how. How you received and heard. Do you remember, do you remember when you placed, placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you remember that? Because I'll never forget. I've shared this story with you guys quite a few times. It was an Easter morning. I was in the choir loft. I'd been in the Easter play that particular morning. Didn't know Jesus, though. I came down out of the choir loft. And it was a church a lot like this. And I stood right there, shook the pastor's hand, gave my life to Christ right there. Do you remember? For you? Some, it was a setting like this. For some, it was your mom and dad's. Uh, room or your bedroom, they prayed with you. For some, it was that Christian concert. For some, I mean, just all kinds of stories, right? 
But then I want you to really remember how, like what happened in your heart. What happened in your mind? Do you remember that? For me, it was like freedom that I had never felt. It was like blinders came off. It was this, I'd never breathed so deeply. I ever liked so much joy. My stomach was doing flip-flops, though. I was so nervous. I couldn't talk. I still can't talk straight, so nothing changed right there. But, I was, I, man, I was just so excited and so nervous in that moment and so free. And there was something inside of me that said, I wish every single person in the world could experience what I'm experiencing right now. And I think, I think that happens for all of us. I think there becomes this hunger to say, I want so bad to see everyone experience the freedom in Christ. I want to see new disciples made. That's what I want to see. And that's the encouragement that we have. And then Jesus says this. He says, but if you will not wake up. So they're on the table. The paddles are out. He's yelling clear. And he says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So he says, you got to wake up and then you better be watchful. Again, that whole Dallas versus Detroit thing, right? Here's another picture. Look at this picture. This is the Acropolis. The Acropolis was on the very peak. That's 1,500 feet, that, that peak. Go, can you go back to the other picture just for a second? Yeah, so you can see in the distance another angle of it. There, there's the mountaintop right there where the Acropolis is located. And then this next picture, I think, shows how intimidating it is. 1,500 feet straight up, three sides of this cliff, sheer rock face, just a sheer rock face up three sides of it, which means you kind of have a grassy hill going up that fourth side. So here's what the city did. They said, well, we don't have anything to fear. You know, no one's coming up the rock, and so we're just going to put one gate. And they were uh, complacent, super complacent. What could go wrong? Nothing's going to hurt us. We don't have to be watchful. We don't have to be on guard. Twice the city was overthrown. Twice they were defeated. Here's how. The enemy soldiers said, we're going to send one. We're going to send one in the middle of the night, like a thief, right up the side of that cliff. And then right in the middle of the night, they're going to walk over to the gate. When everyone's sleeping, they're just going to open up the gate and let the whole army come in. John writes that Jesus... It says that they will not wake up, he will come like a thief, and they will not know at what hour I will come against. And don't you know how rich that language would have been? Because this is their story. This is the story of their city. This is a story that they know all too well. He says, if you don't revive your purpose, if you don't stop the drift and get back to where you're supposed to be, I'm going to take the light inside your little lighthouse, and I'm going to turn it right off because you're useless to me. Which brings us to our last point. How do we keep our lighthouse from drifting? We recognize that Jesus promises to walk with the worthy. Look at verse number four. It says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So verse four and five, we've covered before in other messages, the garments that are white are talking about the faithful, those who say, I know my mission and my purpose, and I'm not gonna compromise. And I think still today, there's a tendency to compromise. 
There's, there's a tendency to say, does hell really exist? You know, does, does sin really exist? Does Scripture really mean what it says about relationships and, and sexuality? There's so many temptations for churches to compromise, and yet our calling is to remain faithful. And if we're faithful, it says that our names will never be blotted out at the Lamb's Book of Life. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and nothing nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord we're called to wake up to wake up and then it says he who has near let him hear what the spirit says to the churches I want to end with what Paul says in Acts 20 he says I testify to you this day I'm innocent of the blood of all for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God so what's the takeaway today? What's the application? Well, I, I think it is this place where you and I have to reflect. Am I in line with the purpose and the mission of God? Am I in the process of being his witness to all that I encounter? Am I in the process of making disciples? Is, is that what I'm doing? Or if I start to fall into the trap of cultural Christianity? Like you know cultural Christianity, Right? Cultural Christianity, I go to church once or twice per year. I, um, I mean, I love Jesus. Yes, I do, but how about you? And you're like cultural Christianity. If I ask you the question, when's the last time you shared your faith with anyone, what would you say? You see, you don't, you don't have to be weird about it. What I'm saying is when the storms of life hit for people and the storms do hit, the storms do hit, and when the storms hit, are you willing to sit down with someone and say, I love you so much, I just, I just want you to hear where you can find peace, even with what you're going through? Because God loves you, and I just want you to hear the truth. See, you don't have to be weird about it. Just care enough about people to tell the truth. You see, if we are a lighthouse, isn't that what a lighthouse does? A lighthouse says we exist because there are storms that happen. When storms happen, people don't see clearly. We want to be a beacon to Washington, to Romeo, to Bruce, to Alma, to Armada, to Shelby, to all the surrounding communities. And so when I look at my own life and when I think about this church, here's two takeaways for me personally. I look and I kind of say, you know, at the end of my days, um, when people talk about me, if they say I'm a good preacher, a bad preacher, I'm just kind of like, yeah, whatever. But here's what I want. I, my hope is that people look and they say, there's a man who never compromised. I never compromised. Billy loved the Lord, and he did what he said. Billy loved people. In fact, if you hang around Billy, you're going to want to love people more. You can't help it. Like, it oozes out of him, and, and just being around Billy makes me want to go love people. Like, it just does. Man, that's my hope. But that you would say, that's a guy who never backed down from speaking truth. But when he spoke the truth, you knew it was because he loved you, and he cared about you, and he wanted you to be right with God. And my hope for this church is that regardless of how many pastors come after me or what the color on the building might be or if there's ever an extended building, like my hope is that our grandkids, grandkids, grandkids have a place where they would say that's a church that truly lives out what it means to do church and community. They love each other. They love the Lord. They want to seek out and save that which is lost. They want to bring healing to those that are hurting they want to be comfort to those that are in the process of mourning. They want to serve those who have needs. But they do it without compromise. 
You know, there's been churches throughout the last 20 years that if I would have preached the same message, you just need to know this. Um, this would have been a hard, hard message to preach for me. Because there have been congregations that this, this was really written to them. Churches where they just need to wake up because they're totally missing it. This morning, that wasn't what I felt at all as I prepared. It was really this heart of gratitude in the Lord. Because this is a fun place to be. It really is. It's a, it's, a, it's a good church. And yet I know even in a good church, sometimes it's easy to be an individual sitting there in the chair and thinking, yeah, that life and death place, that I'm falling asleep place, I think that's me. I just want you to know the grace of the Lord is that today you have the gift of life and you can wake up and you can be part of something really, really special that the Lord is doing right here. Father, we do thank you and we praise you for today. I thank you for the truth in your holy word. Lord, we want to be hearers of the word and doers of the word both. We don't just want to hear only. We want to put in the application what we read. God, from the picture of the Acropolis to the story of Artemis to this encouragement to the church to wake up, I pray that your word just takes root in our heart and we're faithful in living this out. Lord, forgive us for those places where we let compromise sneak in, where we speak anything less than the complete truth and love and grace. Continue to show us what it means to do this faith journey with each other, encouraging one another towards Christ's likeness. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we close our morning in worship together.